eating a meal together, it's, it's one of the most fundamental um, human experiences, I think. It brings us together, it deepens our relationships, uh, and according to some research, it even levels our perceptions of inequalities between us as well. There's nothing quite like sitting down with family and friends, whether it's at home or at a restaurant, sharing food, sharing time, sharing conversation. Uh, Hannah and I were at um, the Moxon's house just last night and had a great time uh, eating together. Key times in the year as well uh, um, uh, and in our lives are often marked by meals. We celebrate over meals, we mourn over meals, uh, we laugh and we cry over meals. It's a date or a birthday or a wedding or a funeral. It's, it's Sunday dinner with the family. It's lunch with your friends in the canteen. It's curry with your mates. In our life group, um, we eat together um, every week, which is great. Um, and yeah, for that exact reason, that that's when the bonds of our Christian um, fellowship and love are being formed and strengthened. So as we continue um, our series, The King and the Cross, we're going to think about a hugely significant meal um, that Jesus shared with his disciples. And actually, you've probably already seen it, um, if you've got the, the, um, the little notes. Um, we're going to think about four meals uh, and a cross. Thank you. So uh, get your Bibles open if you've uh, closed them. Get them open again to Mark chapter 14. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going to spend our time there. So, so yeah, the focus of our thoughts is going to be on this meal right here, the Last Supper. Uh, but first, we need to understand its significance. And Mark makes it clear to us that this happens during the Passover. Um, and that that is really important. It's not like a, just a little detail that he drops in. Um, but it's important. So that's our first meal, the Passover meal. So in verse 1 of this chapter, if you just flick back over the page, um, verse 1 of chapter 14, Mark tells us um, that the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were just a couple of days away. And now in verse 12, we've arrived at the first day of this festival. It's the 14th month of the first day of the Jewish calendar, which is around March, April sort of time. Um, so around about now. Uh, when Mark says it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. So it's like he, he's planting this seed so that this thought is at the, the forefront of our minds. We're not witnessing a regular meal here, but the celebration of a festival. It's a meal with meaning. And knowing that meaning and that background is going to be crucial to understanding what comes next. Uh, the Passover meal was and still is eaten by Jews every year to remember and to celebrate their liberation from the Egyptians uh, about 1,300 to 1,500 years before Christ. It is essentially their Independence Day. The Passover was the event that gave birth to the nation of Israel. So they had this annual meal to look back to that. There we go, looking back to the, to the Passover. And God had promised that on that night, he would storm through the nation of Egypt, killing all of the firstborn males, human and animals, without distinction. Now, although this was about God forcing Pharaoh's hand to let my people go, 
when faced with a holy God, the Israelites wouldn't stand a chance. They, they were not innocent. They would be under God's judgment as well. So God devised a plan which would both satisfy his justice and allow Israel to escape unharmed. What was required was a substitute. God decreed that every house in Israel should kill a perfect one-year-old sheep or goat, goat was allowed as well, and paint its blood on their doorposts. And that would be a sign to God who would pass over those houses, hence the name. The lamb would die instead of the firstborn son, one life in exchange for another. An innocent lamb dying in the place of the guilty. If that sounds fairly brutal to you, it's meant to. The spilling of blood was a vivid picture uh, to them of, of a life being taken. Uh, God says to Moses in Leviticus 17:11, "For the life of a creature is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life." Notice that this wasn't some religious ritual that the Israelites had sort of come up with themselves in the hope of pacifying a vengeful deity. But this was God's own prescribed means of his mercy towards them. He was the just judge who was angry with sin. But he was also the merciful saviour who provided the, uh, the means of their escape from his judgment. Now you might already be starting to see uh, how this is a shadow um, that would be fulfilled in Christ. Once that lamb was killed, God told the Israelites to prepare a meal with it. There wasn't a vegetarian option. So they cooked it with some bitter herbs and they made some bread without yeast uh, because there was no time to let it rise. When Pharaoh gave the order, they wanted to scarper. And as part of his instructions to Israel, God told them to eat that exact same meal every year on the same day. And when the kids asked, why do we do this? The parents could recount the story as it had been passed down to them from their parents and their parents before them of that first Passover and give thanks at how God rescued them from, uh, from Egypt. So it was a family meal then um, with a celebratory turn as they remembered God's amazing salvation and it is that meal that Jesus shared with his disciples here in Mark. So let's move on to our second meal, uh, the pivotal meal, the Last Supper. I'm just going to leave the clicker. <laughs> so just to warn you, uh, we are going to spend the majority of our time in this section, and then we'll just kind of finish off with a, a couple of brief thoughts on the last two meals. Uh, so this meal uh, was kind of an all-night affair, um, you know, it wasn't just sort of in and out, it wasn't fast food. Um, so it would have taken place over the course of several hours, but Mark, in his uh, typical um, fashion, uh, kind of rushes through it quite quickly almost. Um, he doesn't dwell, he just dips in at three points um, and, and lets us witness three scenes. Um, let, let's call them three courses. If we're sticking with a food metaphor. So we'll read through the passage again uh, as we come to each of these courses. So the first course is the preparation, verses 12 to 16. 
on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So Jesus into, sorry, <laughs> so uh, in Jesus' time, sorry, uh, a whole set of uh, customs and practices had grown up around the Passover meal. It was a it was a family affair. And I'm sure that just like our Christmas dinner, they would have had their own family uh, traditions. Um, but there were also ones that were common uh, across, across Israel. So at various points, the host would interrupt and he would interpret different components of the meal and explain their significance. He'd say some special prayers. He'd break bread uh, to pass around. And on four separate occasions, there'd be a, a cup of wine that would be passed around to share as well. There were several courses, there were lots of different dishes, um, and of course the lamb had to be killed as well, and the blood drained. And so Jesus sends two of his disciples on ahead to go and get things ready for this meal. It's difficult to know what the atmosphere would have been like as they arrived and began to eat. This was supposed to be a celebration meal, like we said, but Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross, on his way to die. And the disciples knew that. Whatever the mood was there, Jesus surely changes it dramatically in the second course. So let's read from verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better, it would be better for him if he had not been born. So Jesus interrupts their conversation and he's like, guys, I've got something to tell you. One of you is about to betray me. The disciples' response is, I think it's a bit comical. It kind of sounds a bit like a comedy sketch. You know, if you picture it in your mind, like, surely not me. No, I, I wouldn't do that. Is it you? No, it's definitely not me. They're, they're stunned and they're, they're sad that, um, that Jesus would think them capable of that. Let me just quickly take you to a verse in the Psalms. You don't have to look it up. Um, that, that helps us see the full weight of Jesus' comment in verse 20 about the one who dips uh, bread in the bowl with me. So Psalm 41.9 says this, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. So in this culture, sharing bread together was a sign of deep, uh, deep trust, deep friendship. So to violate that would be a huge betrayal. And the punishment would be appropriately severe. 
It would be better for him if he had not been born, Jesus says. Rejecting God's king is the same as rejecting God himself. And that carries with it a fate worse than death. We've already touched a little bit on the idea of God's anger. Uh, but let's jump onto a little, um, a little side plate and explore that a little bit more. The theological term we often use for God's anger is his wrath. This is God's settled, controlled, righteous opposition to and anger at sin. Let me repeat that. God's wrath is his settled, controlled, righteous opposition to and anger at sin. So God's wrath springs directly from his character. God is perfectly just. That is what he's like in his character. And what God is like never changes. It's invariably expressed in his actions. His, his actions are they're, they're always an expression of his character. You know, sometimes we talk about people acting out of character, but we can never talk about God in that way because God never acts out of character. Everything that he does flows from everything that he is. And so because God is just, he must necessarily punish evil. Because to leave it unpunished would mean that either God is unjust or God is not God. Here's a message that God spoke to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel a few hundred years before Jesus. And he says this to Israel who are persistent in idolatry. He says, I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. So I think there's an idea here that God has an appropriate amount of anger at Israel for their sin and that it'll be poured out or spent until the punishment has been executed in full. Did you see that? That there's this debt of punishment that must be completely paid, that must be completely satisfied. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy by any means, but when you take out a mortgage and, and the bank uh, transfers that money over, you're, you're in debt to the bank. Um, you know, you make your first payment and it, and it wouldn't be right at that point to say, you know, that's it, cancel my direct debit, I've paid you know, the bank expects that you will satisfy the, you know, the whole of that debt, not just part of it. The full balance has got to be paid. So coming back to God's anger, that, that debt of punishment is something that each one of us owes. That's not, not just the Judases, not just the Peters and the Johns. Sorry, not just the Jews, but the, Peter, the Peters and the Johns, and also the Jais and the Hannas, and each one of us. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, God's wrath is looming over us. God is patient. But one day, we don't know when, the debt will have to be repaid. Blood will be spilled and God's anger will be spent. And yet, 
Look down at verse 21. Jesus, in that very same verse, assures his disciples that he is still in control of his destiny. Even as he's betrayed by one of his best friends, God's plan is working itself out and the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Jesus will go to the cross. So now we're getting to the heart of what all this has been about. Really everything so far has been laying the foundations uh, to properly understand the significance of what Jesus does next. So let's move on to the, the third course. Starting at verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So as the host of the meal, um, Jesus' job was to interpret the different parts of the meal to everyone there. The disciples would have heard this stuff plenty of times before. There was a script. But Jesus takes the script, rips it up, and throws it away. I've got another copy of that page, don't worry. What, what Jesus actually does is it reinterpret the bread and the wine, declaring himself to be the fulfillment of it. He was the thing that the Passover pointed to. Its purpose was to point forward to Christ, and now he's come. That purpose doesn't stand anymore. Now there's something new. So first, before the main meal, he takes some bread, he breaks it up into pieces, and he hands it out to his disciples, and he tells them that this is him. Not literally, because he's sat right there in front of them, but, it, but it's a, a symbol of his presence with them. And then after the main meal, uh, he takes a cup of wine. I said there was four cups of wine. I think this is the third cup, which would have been shared. And Jesus declares that this is his blood. Again, a symbol, not literally, but a symbol pointing to the real blood that he would pour out on the cross that very same day. I think we've got another slide. Do you remember the, the significance of blood at the first Passover? It was drained from innocent lambs that were sacrificed in the place of the Israelites. It represented a life taken, and it covered their doorposts to shield them from God's wrath. Now, Jesus is announcing himself to be the ultimate unblemished Passover lamb, whose blood is poured out as God's wrath is poured out on him. The animal sacrifices can finish because the substance to which the shadows pointed is here. There's a new covenant, a new promise from God about how he relates to his people and is sealed in the blood of Christ. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. 
his sinless life is forfeit that the lives of his followers then and now might be spared. His innocent blood marks us out so that when judgment comes, God will pass over us. That blood has already been spilled for all of our sin. God's wrath has been fully spent. It is completely satisfied. Not on a lamb, not on an innocent third party, but on himself. It's not that the Father is a judge and Christ is our saviour, but that God is both our judge and our saviour. He devised this beautiful plan where justice and mercy wonderfully meet. On the cross, God bore his own terrible wrath so that his sinful people would not have to. There's immense assurance and confidence in this, isn't there? I think the whole passage is driving towards that, towards this idea that the future is not up in the air, but it is safe and secure with Jesus. Let me just quickly show you how Mark does that. In the first course, Jesus tells his disciples uh, how they'll find the place to set up the Passover. And then in verse 16, it says simply that they found things just as Jesus had told them. In the second course, Jesus explains that he'll be betrayed. But he assures them that that is all part of the plan. And in the third course, he reaffirms his knowledge of his death. But rather than telling them to mourn, he encourages them to celebrate, to rejoice, to look forward to his return. So as Jesus nears the cross here, his disciples have put their trust in him. They've followed him this far to Jerusalem. And and he gives them assurance, gives them confidence that they're doing the right thing, that he's in control. He's not telling them that they're safe from all physical danger, but that they're safe from spiritual danger, safe from the consequences of their sin, because Jesus' blood is completely sufficient. This is different to the Passover lamb, isn't it? It's different to the sacrifices that Israel used to make in the temple, as Ian Fenton was uh, teaching us last week. In Hebrews 10, it says that those sacrifices that the people offered in the temple had no power to take away sin, because if they had, they wouldn't have had to keep doing them again and again and again. But the sacrifice of Jesus is once for all. This is a truth for us to to feast on and enjoy. And doesn't it taste delicious? The sufficiency of Christ's blood shed on the cross is a sweet antidote to all of our doubts and all of our fears. It's the grounds on which we can have complete confidence that when God comes in judgment, He'll pass over us. It's the only grounds on which we can have that confidence. But that confidence can only be claimed by his followers. Notice how Jesus says that his blood is poured out for many, not for all. Remember that in Egypt it wasn't everyone that was safe, but it was only those 
who had the lamb's blood painted on their doorposts, marking them out. And so it's only those who accept Jesus' sacrifice who are covered by it. There's a choice for each of us as individuals. We can face the wrath of God ourselves, or we can accept Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We're nearly done, but let's spend a couple of minutes on, on these last two meals, one present and one future. This was a little illustration of showing the, the shadow and the substance. So the, the present meal is what we call uh, the Lord's Supper or communion, or some churches might call it the Eucharist. And that's where we follow Christ's example and we share bread and wine together. It's a meal that Christians have shared ever since the Last Supper. In, uh, in Luke's account, it's not here in Mark, but in Luke's account, uh, he tells us some more of Jesus' words. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So Christians no longer celebrate the Passover. It was a shadow and the substance is here. And we don't sacrifice and eat a lamb when we have communion. Because all of the blood that needed to be poured out has been poured out by Christ. We don't need an animal as a substitute because Christ is our substitute. He is our ultimate Passover lamb. And so we, uh, we follow this command to share bread and wine or a non-alcoholic alternative to remind each other of the salvation that's ours in Christ. There's nothing magical going on. We're not performing a ritual to try and make God look on us kindly, but we're eating a meal of thanksgiving together to remember how he has already looked on us kindly in Christ. And as we do this, it strengthens our faith. It fills us up with confidence. It marks us out as God's chosen people. And it binds us together in unity. So as a very practical application, uh, let me encourage you to participate in communion. And we'll have the chance to do that in just a few minutes' time. This is the church's family meal. And isn't it significant that Jesus shared that profoundly family-oriented Passover meal, with his, not with his biological family, but with his spiritual family, his disciples? It's like he's saying, you're my family now. As Jesus announces the new covenant, he plants seeds of the new covenant community and what it'll be like. From these 11 disciples, the gospel went out to all corners of the world. And churches sprung up everywhere. Communities that share a family bond because they're in Christ. Christians are not just friends who attend the same event every week, but brothers and sisters called to love and serve each other, to, to rejoice and to weep together, to pray for and to care for one another, and to grow in loving love and fellowship as we meet together and eat together. The spark that lit the fire of this community is right here in Mark 14. Just think, what, what do your neighbours, your colleagues, school friends, teammates, the people you come into contact with, what do they think about your relationship with your brothers and sisters? 
your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do they see something different there? I don't necessarily mean that we use those words, brother and sister, but, but I mean, do we, do we give each other the status of family in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions? Are our dinner tables, our homes and our lives open to each other as family? Maybe you're someone who's a Christian and you've been coming along here for a while, but you haven't committed to be a member of REC just yet. Please consider taking that step. It's true we can be a Christian without being a member of a church, but we can't practically love the millions of other Christians in the world. We can love the members of our local expression of that community that we have committed to. So come and talk to one of the leaders if that's you. And if you're not a Christian, I hope that this stirs a desire in you to be part of this true community. That it makes you feel like you're missing out on something. We want to invite you to, uh, to be part of something unique. There are communities everywhere around all sorts of things, but it's always about something to do with me. You know, what, what I do or who I am. But the church is a community based on something that is done for us. And we'd love to talk more with you about that. Okay, we've got one more meal to think about very briefly. It's already up there, a promised meal. When we celebrate communion, we don't just look back. We're also looking forward to a meal in the future. That's what Jesus is referring to in verse 25 here, uh, when he promises his disciples that he's going to drink, um, drink wine again in the kingdom of God. It's notable that this is the third of four cups of wine that were shared at the Passover meal. Um, because it seems like they never get round to the fourth. It's like Jesus is reassuring them that he's not saying goodbye, but just see you later. He's promising them that, that one day he's going to return. And on that day, there will be a huge banquet where that fourth and final cup will be drunk. And it will be shared not just among 12 disciples, but among countless millions uh, who have called Jesus their Lord and their Saviour over the centuries. It's going to be a feast, unlike any other. Revelation 9 calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb, as Christ marries his blood-bought, spotless bride, the church. It will be a joyful celebration. Any other great meal we've ever had in our lives will just pale in comparison to this. So this is our hope as Christians and as we take communion, we look forward to that day, to Jesus' return, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Do you sometimes, often, maybe always, feel like a struggling Christian? Whatever problems, difficulties, trials, sufferings, life is thrown at you. Whatever sins you're struggling with, whatever doubts, causing you grief 
Remember Jesus' sacrifice in your place. Remember that it is absolutely 100% sufficient to pay for every one of your sins. Remember in the depths of your struggles and despairs how his blood has been poured out for you and marks you out as his bought and precious child. Feast on that truth daily. Ask God to make it more real, more wonderful to you in your life, to give you more confidence that you will feast with him on that future day at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Look to the ultimate Passover Lamb, whose blood was poured out to turn aside God's wrath away from us and to give us assurance and confidence of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus. We thank you that he spilled his blood, uh, that, yeah, that your wrath was on him in our place, Lord. Lord, I pray that that would uh, fill us up with confidence this week uh, as we go out into the world. Assure us of our salvation. Um, yeah, and help us to look to and feast on that, that wonderful truth um, that, that Jesus has died in our place, Lord. Amen.